from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. Precisely at 8.45, the waiter delivered a dry vermouth on the rocks to Mr. Jenks in room 205. He found Jenks at the writing table, scribbling a letter on the arena's engraved stationery. Jenks rose, took the drink, and tipped the waiter 20 pesetas. Thinking how foolish Americans were with their money, the waiter left. Hi, my name is Hugh, and welcome to the show. I'm joined, as always, by my compatriot across the sea, Hunter. Hello, Hugh. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's good to hear. So, yes, we will be continuing our journey through Michael Crichton's debut novel, Odds On, written under the pseudonym John Lange. And I have with me my two Odds On appropriate food items. Mm. One of which is banana cream biscuits, the other of which is a beverage. Which it is, is. a wine. Mm. comes from a box that you can purchase at Aldi <laughs> for $10. What, what color is this wine? The wine is white. Would you describe it as a crisp white? I think it's fresh, dry white, I think is what the box reads. Mm. Would, you, would you say it matches those descriptive qualities? Inasmuch as I don't actually know what fresh dry white would even entail um yes yes i have my white wine i have my biscuits what do you have well you it's very interesting that you ask because i have in my hand right this moment a glass filled with my signature beverage and beside me resting atop a notebook is my signature snack of odds on and the drink i thought appropriate because this this book is kind of about you know hotel life there's a lot of bars involved Yes. So I figured I would mix a drink, and I mixed today something that I figured might, something that might uh, pass through the glass of one Mr. Michael Crichton, or perhaps one of his uh, boozy characters. And I have in my hand a drink known as a gin sour. Mmm. Yeah, which consists of gin, simple syrup, an egg white, <laughs> uh, some bitters, some dashes of bitters, and some lemon juice. Wow. You prepared this yourself? I did prepare it myself. Also gin, of course. Hmm, I'm impressed. Yeah. I'm sipping on that. It tastes a little like cough syrup, but I'm not letting that get me down. <laughs> and uh, what did you pair that drink with? I paired that drink with something that I thought would be not appropriate at all to it, which is a package of saltines. Hmm. Which is something that I was craving. And also because I kind of forgot that I had to prepare a signature snack, at least you pick the most appealing thing in the cabinet. So, Right. So there's no particular thematic connection between saltines and odds-on. No. Perhaps so I'll, you can 
Musta. <laughs> Perhaps I'll have to make that next. I'll, I'll do that in the next book that we read. Mm. Which, by the way, I just downloaded off the internet. So, excited for that. Nice. Yep, I don't even remember the title of it. I'm excited too. I bet it'll be exactly like this book, but with the names changed. <laughs> <laughs> and probably the foreign set of change also. I'm excited for whatever new emerging technology will be involved. <laughs> Alright. Let me just take a bite of banana cream biscuit. Let's hear it. <clears throat> so where were we? Where were we? So last uh, last chapter, we had our, our three main characters, or at least the three characters that are involved in this mysterious plan mm. is fomenting mm-hmm. they had all just arrived at the hotel arena this exclusive isolated resort somewhere in spain mm. and uh, they had made plans to meet up in a hotel room later that night mm. right that was pretty much it there were some other bits and pieces in there but i think that was where we left off right yeah we got we got we got introduced to some new characters, mm-hmm. um, including the uh, old woman and her chauffeur in uh, Algiers. Yes, Monsieur and Jean Paul. Yes, and Annette, the um, uh, so, some sort of management person, assistant manager, because Brian at the end of the last chapter had arranged a date with Annette. That's right. And it was clear he was doing so as part of the plan. In the last chapter, as we said, we were promised a meeting between our three men of ill repute. Uh, And by God, does this chapter pay it off? Am I right? Yes. Crichton certainly does not elide over the details of this plan. But perhaps we will a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should we should do our best to recount the specifics of the plan. Exactly what we remember of this plan. Okay, but we can't look at the without referring to the text. Yes, I agree. So I think between the two of us, we can hash out the details of this plan. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I agree. We can we can nail it one hundred percent. I'm not going to check over it again. So we'll have to rely on our listeners who are feeding along with us. <laughs> Sorry, I should say between the four of us. So between me, you. The white wine, the banana cream biscuits, the Michael gin sour, God, yeah, gin sour, and saltine crackers, the saltine crackers, yeah. Between the six of us, between the six of us, between the seven of it. us, with Michael Crichton being the seventh member, is mm. watching us from heaven, of course, or hell, of course. Let's do it. So, uh, the chapter starts. Jinx is in his hotel room, as you uh, elucidated in your uh, the opening paragraph of the chapter. Uh, yes. which, you, which you read aloud. Um, he uh, has ordered a vermouth, which is so-called, according to Jinx, the drink of diplomats, because you can drink it all night, get just tipsy enough to be social, but not so tipsy that you reveal information. Hmm. So sort of uh, gives a little bit about Jinx's character. So when I was reading his um, endorsement of vermouth... <laughs> I was thinking, I gotta try some vermouth. That sounds good. Uh, Hugh, you know, you want to know something? I thought the exact same thing. Um, Apparently, it makes you articulate. <laughs> well, we'll definitely need some of it for this podcast. So we 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 sorely need some vermouth. 
What is vermouth? I don't even. I don't even really know what it is. It, I believe it is a fortified wine. Oh, is it? I think so. I didn't know it was a fortified wine. I thought it was like a spirit. I believe it is a it fortified is wine. No, you're right. You're right. Wow, I'm surprised I knew something more about alcohol than you did. I wonder if it's expensive. Perhaps we should drink vermouth on the next book that we tackle in Crichton's bibliography. I think because this book mentioned vermouth, mm, we have that to drink it. for one episode we should drink some vermouth. Possibly for next week. For, for the finale, we'll drink it. What we should do is go through and look up all the drinks that they list out of this book and then have them <laughs> in, the final, in the final episode. <laughs> and try and recount the whole book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, but anyway, that's what we're doing right now. Right now, we are recounting the plot. So, Jinx is this room. Actually, right now, I'm looking at the prices of vermouth at my local liquor store. Go on, go on. Get, on get on topic, bro. <laughs> Sorry, man. So, we've got Jinx in his hotel room. He's soon joined by Miguel, or he's soon joined by Brian and then Miguel. Yeah, Brian is five minutes earlier than Miguel. Yeah, by design. And Jinx asks Brian... Mm. to give him some give him the lowdown on Miguel yep. for exactly three minutes before uh, Miguel arrives himself. Mm. And he does. We learn a little bit more about Miguel. We learn that he's uh, unimaginative, but nonetheless useful. Mm. And, and then, he has balls of steel. Yeah, we learn about some scheme that he pulled, getting some currency through Egyptian customs. Yeah, so similar to the opening of the novel in which he smuggles uh, dynamite across the border. And then Miguel enters the room, and we get a little section where Jinx is quizzing him about... Sorry, I was going to knock. Okay. Uh, who's there? Is it Miguel? Yeah, it's me, Miguel. Hi. <laughs> I'm not going to commit to this bit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think when you go back and edit this, you'll hear the disinterest in my voice when I said... <laughs> Is there? I'm sorry. The uninterest in your voice. Uh, whatever. I, I, I don't. I don't give a shit. Five items or fewer. Okay. So uh, Miguel enters the room. And hey, hey guys, it's me, Miguel. What have you been talking about? Do you mean talking about me? Shut the, shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's all lies. You, you know, you're you're the one who's hurting yourself right now. This is going to be a nightmare to edit, just because of you, buddy. <laughs> What are you talking about? This is staying in. No, it's not. This show needs to be and this exchange no, as well. This this show the people we're talking about whether it stays in or not is is staying in. This show needs to be fleet, and it needs to be pared down. I think twenty minutes should be our upper limit. I agree. And to that end, I think you should cut all this garbage. We'll see. And we should get back to... What if the, I put that smoky saxophone music beneath it? <laughs> It'll be better then. <laughs> uh, let's get back to the topic at hand. So Miguel enters. Right. He gets quizzed very briefly on the... Come in. Uh, content now I'm a different character. Jinx's, you come in, Miguel. On the content of Jinx's room. Wait, right, so let's start again. So Miguel enters. Yep. He's told immediately to face the door and then recount the specific details of the layout of the room from memory. And lo and behold, he succeeds beyond their wildest expectations or beyond their minimum expectations, I guess. And the way, oh, the reason is that this is is because he's been studying the flashcards that Jinx provided him. Or that Brian provided them. That someone provided him. Yeah. I'm assuming Jenks provided them to Brian. Brian provided them to Miguel. Yeah. That's more than likely true. 
I didn't quite understand though. Did they give them flashcards of all the hotel rooms in the building, or just the flashcard for the one hotel room that he was entering as a test? I also did understand. I assume it was like maybe just like a basic idea layout of the rooms. Maybe there's a bit about the suits that cannot be true for all the hotel rooms. So I assume it's just mm. like the generic sort of layout is what is on the flashcard. Yeah. But anyway, so Miguel passes, and then Jinx goes into his plan. In some detail, at some length. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. This is the meat of the chapter. What is the plan? This mysterious plan that involves a British guy, <laughs> a Mexican-American guy, and another American guy. Mm-hmm. What is it? Uh, I'll tell you, Hugh, they're going to rob... The hotel rooms. Okay. So what are they going to steal exactly? They're going to steal jewels and cash. Jewels, yep. Cash. And traveler's checks. Wait, you can't steal traveler's checks because you need a passport in order to uh, cash them out, right? Um, Not in uh, the parts of Africa where the fence that Jinx talked to in the previous chapter, whose name I've completely forgotten, Reese, Reese, will turn them into money because they do not care in these parts of Africa. At a cost, mind you. But Chinx estimates their total um, gross will be about a million pa- or a million dollars, rather. A million dollars, yes. So that will be the total of the jewels, any cash they find, these traveler's checks, which yes. will be the, at least, I think the traveler's checks um, account for most of the takings. But there is also a safe in the manager's office, which Jenks has the combination to. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm not going to speak to Jenks' uh, the reasoning behind this, but he paid $10,000 for this combination, which seems he laughs it off as not being that much money. But considering that their take is only a million dollars, it seems like a pretty significant amount of money. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> and also the fact that it's possible the combination might be changed. So. That would invalidate his information. Which means that in terms of logic, they would not have brought that up unless it is something that probably will happen in the plot, but we'll see uh, in the future, won't we? Okay, so how are they going to get away with stealing all these traveler's checks, all these jewels and all this cash, and busting into the manager's safe? Surely that would arouse suspicion. You'd think so, but they have planned a diversion... And that, as we mentioned in the previous episode, the arena is a hotel which is located on an island off the coast of Spain. They are planning on exploding the bridge um, that uh, leads onto the island. And the way that they will uh, deflect suspicion away from themselves or anyone else who might be in the hotel is that they are calling a taxi that will, I guess, pretend to drop people off. Uh, and then as after it crosses the bridge, that, that is when they'll blow it up. So it seems as though the people uh, who committed the robbery were uh, ferried onto the island in this taxi and then stole the stuff and then left and then blew the bridge up. Uh, just a slight correction. So mm, the taxi please. will be pretending to pick people up, right? So it won't be dropping anyone off. Ah, ah. So the doorman will set off towards the hotel to fetch the people in question. 
And at that moment, the lights will all go out in the hotel. There'll be chaos. Mm. And the car will slam its doors and drive away suspiciously. Mm. So suspiciously that the doorman will notice. Yes. Right? And then later report that fact to any authorities that question him. But it, may, it doesn't even matter if the doorman notices or not. What matters is the taxi will be gone by the time the doorman Yes. Notices, as Jinx notes. But ideally, the doorman's uh, accounts will help support the narrative that they're trying to instill. Yeah. But also, there'll be another distraction in the form of a fire that Brian is going to set in the game room, the casino room, with mm -hmm. a napalm sort of device that'll set off and then burn and then cause a fire. And the fire is specifically designed to get the manager out of his office so that Jenks can break into the safe. Yes. Let's see what else. Uh, that's pretty much the bulk of the plan. They have some uh, waterproof sacks that they'll put the jewels and the money and the whatever other takings the traveler checks into, which will be ferried to a boat that's waiting for them on the dock, which is why Jinx went to the dock uh, in the previous chapter, the, pre the chapter before that. And that's how they'll get away with their money. Another key component of their plan is that they are going to spend the next couple of days um, determining who would make uh, not good targets, but rather bad targets and try to eliminate them from the pool of rooms they are planning on heading. Uh, another detail that's in the plan is that the room keys uh, work for some percentage of the rooms that are also on the floor. About half of the other rooms on the floor um, they also work with. So you essentially need 10 keys in total and you can get into every single room of yes. the hotel. And Jinx has acquired these keys also by money. Uh, is there anything else to the plan? Jinx goes on a, a long tangent about how he used a computer to sort it into the correct like operational... Yeah, they go over the probabilities of success at the end of the chapter. There's an 89% chance that they'll they'll succeed. At least according to the computer. Which I think means that there's a 100% chance that they will not succeed. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. Anyway, Jinx talks about the fact that he made money by becoming basically a card counter in Reno. Making just enough to not arouse the casino's suspicions. Yes. Um, and for some reason that has given him the confidence that this job will go off. Go off hitchless yes um he he was a what, what, what would you call it i don't know a statistics enthusiast or something yeah a loser <laughs> and he went in deep on all this uh, probability stuff which served him well both in the war and at the card table yeah he was able to get out of korea unscathed uh and that is about it for the meeting is there any other parts of the plan that i skipped over in my summary no i think that that's Pretty, pretty solid. Sounds like got nothing to worry about. It's going to go off without a hitch. <laughs> yep. And the computer is even accounted for the possibility that there are hitches. It says that there's only a 0 .03 chance that they'll get caught or something like that. We'll see, though. Out of all the things that could go wrong in the course of the operation, the only thing they really need to worry about is being caught red-handed, mm. actually stealing something from someone's room. Yes, that's true. Anything else they can get through, really. According to the computer, anyway. According to the computer. 
1966 computers are definitely to be trusted with this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Foolproof those machines. So after the explanation of this plan, Miguel exits the room and Brian stays on for a bit so that Jinx can inform I'm just going to go see you guys. Yep, he's like, oh, goodbye. Uh, and uh, Jinx does a little explanating where he tells him about the man, the two men that had been following him when he was in Barcelona. Yes. And also, we get some more details about Brian's uh, plan involving Annette. Mm, yes, yes. And the fact that Jinx had wanted him to uh, insinuate himself among the staff. And that's that's a pretty much it for this portion of the chapter. But Hugh, we are alighting a little extra uh, dollop of um, cream. Banana cream. That uh, <laughs> breaks up the uh, techno babble and the um, masculine planning with. Which is we get another visit from our two very good friends, uh, Ginny and Peter. Uh, what's his face? <laughs> Peter Ganson in the moonlight. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> feeling good. Uh, I don't know why you're seeing You know you're just going to edit it out when you edit the podcast. So, Peter Ganson. Why would I edit that out? Because it's not funny. <laughs> not funny to you, but you're not the editor. Um, and we get a little awkward scene um, where. Awkward singing, did you say? Yep, where Peter is trying to... Dancing. Shut up. Where Peter is uh, in her room, and uh, she has a strong desire for him to come over and fuck her, but he does not do it. Uh, instead, he awkwardly gives her a kiss and then fondles her, <laughs> which is bizarre. Interesting sexual politics in this scene. Yes. I, I think this could be a perfect... Uh, opportunity, unless you have another uh, passage you'd like to read from, for uh, uh, the hit segment of the podcast for Crichton Out Loud. What do you think? Mm. Let's go. For Crichton Out Loud. He sat there, silent, and she could almost feel his frustration. Normally, she wouldn't have found this, that frustration interesting, even exciting. But he was such a whiner. If he wanted her, why didn't he just come over and take her? She needed a man, not a sick-faced puppy. At last, he stood up and stubbed out his cigarette. All right, he said, but give me a kiss. She frowned, marveling that she had ever agreed to meet him in Europe. The whole business was a fiasco. Peter had been fined for football and football games and cocktail parties in Cambridge, but that was all he was good for. He came over and bent to, bent to kiss her lips. She turned, uh, she turned her face away, received a, a, a wet smack on the cheek. Good night, he said mournfully. Oh, for Christ's sake, Peter, good night. She reached up quickly and drew his head down to her, giving him a soft, lingering kiss. She wasn't being too hard. Uh, sorry. Excuse me. She was being too hard on the boy. She didn't like to be a bitch. It was just he was he infuriated her so. His hand darted down in a swiftly furtive gesture, caressing the bare breast beneath the sheet. Gently but firmly, she pushed him away. Good night, she said. Nodding to himself, he left. At the door, he paused, and for a moment, she felt that he was going to return and take her. The prospect filled her with a strange mixture of anger and excitement. The next instant, instant he was gone, and the door shut behind him. So the moral of the story is that real men don't take no for an answer. Uh, the moral of the story is that, in fact, uh, women want men not to take a no for an answer, I think. Even, even more extreme than that. What women want more than anything else is for men to violate what they say and fuck them 
so there's it's kind of a bizarre and disquieting little sub chapter in this long chapter about techno and meeting planning, I think, and uh, plan making rather. Um, and I found it pretty pretty off putting. What did you what do you, what do you what do you say, Hugh? Yeah, I agree. Although the interesting thing is that this this paradigm where the man has to kind of overcome this superficial gesture of resistance from the woman mm. and that that's secretly what the woman actually wants, right? That is very much in keeping with Mills and Boone novels written for women, certainly of that era as well. Yes, that's true. Even if the root of that whole paradigm is the toxic nature of the patriarchy itself because a woman openly being uh, sexual or lustful about her own desires is seen as a turn-off, right? And uh, is frowned upon. It still makes it kind of gross and difficult to read, though. Certainly. No, even knowing that it is keeping with the norms of the time. As it does as it does in the context of even Mills and Boone stuff directed to women. It's all unsettling. All right. Um, but uh, with that, with that little... Uh, subheader be dealt with that is the entirety of night of thursday uh june 17th i believe end of chapter end of chapter and end of podcast of brown Hall.